Any patient receiving care at Cedar first needs to walk through steps of the admission process. This includes determining appropriateness for treatment and the complexities of insurance authorization. On this episode of Through the Trees, we sit down with Todd Nice and Audrey Davis, members of the Cedar Admissions team. We seek to answer some of the most common admissions questions to help potential new patients and their families. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for Cedar in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. So this is Dr. Pat Failing, and I'm very happy to sit down today with part of our team at Cedar involved in something that every patient or family here has to experience, which is the admission process. Once again, this is part of the Through the Trees podcast, and we like providing education about the experience at Cedar, how it all works, to be able to offer guidance for families, patients, and then also other clinicians. Today I'm sitting down with Todd Nice and Audrey Davis. Uh, Todd is a behavioral health evaluator as part of the admissions team, and Audrey is an intake and access coordinator. Uh, we have a few other people also who, who work on the admissions team who aren't uh, on the podcast show today. So there's a lot of different people involved. Thank you guys for sitting down, and I think this is going to be good. So how should we start with this topic? I know you guys are kind of on the, the cedar front line, if you will. Um, what is that like for you? I really like being on the front line. I feel honored to be the first person that families or, or potential patients reach out to um, making that phone call saying that you have a problem or you have a loved one who's struggling with drugs or alcohol is the hardest phone call some people ever make. And so I'm really glad that we're here uh, to help people navigate that. Something that I tell families is that, you know, nobody uh, teaches you in any parenting books or in school what to do if you find out that your spouse or your parent or your child is struggling with substances. And so I think a lot of being on the front line is slowing slowing people down and, and letting them know that they're in good hands and helping them navigate uh, the admissions process. So they're almost like a position of privilege in a way. These people might, they might be talking to, you might be the very first person that's a my dad has a drinking problem, or, or maybe I have a drinking problem. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I hear that quite often, or, you know, you'll have families tell you that there's one problem, and then you talk to the potential patient, and there's so much more that they hadn't disclosed to their family. So knowing that you are the first person that people are really honest with, and and there it is a really emotional experience, and so... I think as far as being on the front lines, we're lucky to have such a good team that uh, there are some phone calls that are really hard and being able to, to lean on each other and support each other because it is 
every time you pick up the phone, you never know what's going to be on the other line, or the other end of the line. Sure. I think she really answered it well. I mean, we really try and answer questions and be as honest and straightforward as we can when when people call and uh, they are often very desperate or going through a lot of things and not sure where to turn. Okay. I know you guys do very good work and, and we hear that also from the patients as well uh, who walk through the doors here at Cedar. What are some of the specifics about this? So like if a, if a caller calls Cedar and is looking for help, what are some of the questions that they're going to ask you guys? Most of the time they'll ask about length of stay, like what options do we have available? Do we have a detox? Do we have residential or other outpatient coverage options? Many times we find ourselves asking, uh, people ask questions about insurance and what's uh, in network and what insurance companies do we work with. And also, sometimes people ask if we're a locked facility or if there's a way of keeping a loved one in treatment. And we aren't here. We obviously are a voluntary program and we want people to be able to be engaged fully in their process here of uh, treatment. Sure. So, okay. So in answering some of those questions uh, quickly, we have different lengths of stay. This is a voluntary treatment center. But my guess, probably a lot of very practical questions. Yes, yeah. About the program and cost of the program. and So those are all some of the initial questions we get. Do, are there a fair number of people who call who have some experience working with addiction treatment before? Like they've, they've received treatment in some fashion? Yeah, we get people who have maybe been to other treatment facilities briefly or maybe uh, pursued detox or maybe even been in the emergency room and are looking for what uh, services and, and things we offer for uh, a longer stay or for more comprehensive uh, program. And they know that we're connected to UC Health, and so they often ask questions about what that would look like in their treatment at CEDAR. Sure. Okay. How about on the flip side? What are some of the primary questions that you're going to ask a caller? What kind of information do you want to know? Most of the questions that I ask the caller, whether it's the patient or the family member, initially are questions that are going to help me better help them. So I'll want to know first off what their timeline is. For example, if someone is needing emergency right now care, I don't want to uh, to spend too much time on the phone with them because we wouldn't be the appropriate um, facility for that. So I want to redirect them. Additionally, if someone has an insurance that we don't take or we may not be uh, the best fit for the family financially, we want to find that out early on in the call so that we can redirect them um, and not you know, spend any time talking about things that may not ultimately be an option for one reason or another. A big question that we ask is, why now? So generally, there's some sort of prompting that happens, whether someone's having a significant marital problem, a career is falling apart, or, or you know they've lost their career, DUI, other legal problems um, that prompt them making this call. And so, you know, as Todd kind of mentioned, 
we are a, a higher level of care, so oftentimes we will speak to people who have been to outpatient or detox or, or other other programs in the past. And so we like to know what's different this time. What is prompting you to call CEDAR now? Why today? I know you mentioned the concept of an emergency. Like we, What are some examples of emergency situations where we might not be the best fit for somebody? So someone is acutely intoxicated, so they're at a, a dangerous level of you know, needing, needing to go to the hospital. Um, we, we do have a process that we go through. So someone does have to be stable enough to answer some questions, um, give us insurance information. We have to get approval. So essentially if someone doesn't have the time or the capacity for one reason or another to follow those steps, um, or if someone is actively suicidal, uh, we, we want to make sure that they're going to their closest emergency room or calling 911. And I always tell them that, you know, that's not a disqualifier. We'd be happy to to pick this up from the hospital bed, but our primary focus is always going to be the safety of our patients. So, so the patient before walking, they need to be coherent. They need to be able to cooperate in a basic sense. If they're uh, di- highly disoriented or something, they may require some emergency room care mm-hmm. for some stretch of time before coming in. Yeah, and, and you know, like Todd mentioned, uh, part of the reason why we, we want them to be have some capacity to do that is so that we can get important information on them. But also, we are an elective program, and we don't want anyone to admit and go back onto our nursing staff and have no idea why they're here, have no idea how they got here, don't know what they've gotten into. So we, we want to give them the opportunity to ask questions. Okay, so that's probably a very important message for families as well. They can't just drop off an intoxicated son and say, treat this person, Mm-mm. treat my son. There's gonna There needs to be some engagement or discussion with your team and that son. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. I'm sure there must be a plenty of other things that you might ask people, right, in terms of what you want to know, their health history and their psychiatric history and the kind of medications that they take and... Legal issues. Yeah. We'd like to know if there's any current legal issues. We also ask about past uh, treatment. And what kind of uh, experiences they've had, what kind of treatment they've been a part of in the past. And also, do they have a team or is somebody recommending them to come into treatment? And sometimes that is the case that they have a therapist or psychiatrist that has been talking with them about it. Or even maybe an interventionist has has met with the family or talked with the family about possibility of coming to CEDAR. Uh, Todd, can you expand on that? The, I know we've worked with interventionists before. How does how does that process work? Yeah, so the interventionists in the community are independent uh, and are not connected to our hospital system, but it may be a, a case where a family has contacted an interventionist and they've already met and the client has agreed to, the patient has agreed to come into treatment and the family is now doing research and trying to find the appropriate place, and they're trying to get that person in as soon as possible. Okay. Will the will the family or the interventionist 
coordinate the admission with us before the intervention even happens? There is sometimes when the interventionist will reach out to us and will notify us, give us some basic information, and ask us about uh, any questions that we may need to look into uh, and pursue ahead of time and before the intervention occurs. Okay. Do we have a lot of intervention stuff, or is that more on the more on the rare side? It's more on the rare side. I mean, I would say we may get a few of these a month, but it's not it's not uh, it's a very small percentage of the amount of clients that we have that come in. Okay. Are there people who are calling who are actually more seeking advice from your team? They want almost brief counseling or guidance about how to work with somebody with alcoholism per se. How do, does that ever happen? Yeah. And I mean, I think part of the benefit of, of my position and my qualifications are that I, um, you know, I can, I can sort of stop those by saying I'm not licensed. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. You know, we need to be very careful that we aren't giving advice that, that would, we wouldn't be able to give, uh, here. So that's why a lot of times if someone does say, you know, this person is a danger to themselves, they're a danger to us, I feel unsafe, things like that, we, we redirect them to, to call the authorities, take them to a mental health program. But th- we do have a fair number of um, generally parents, but sometimes spouses who call and are just so overwhelmed, uh, stressed, don't, don't know where else to turn. And, you know, we, we do spend time just sort of talking to them, explaining options to them about interventionists, family counseling. We have a really great family program here. Um, and something that I, I really like to do is have the caller and or the family come by for a tour um, and see our facility and sit down and meet with us. Sometimes people may jump straight to the idea of an interventionist without really speaking to the potential patient about treatments. So my advice is usually to to speak to them and, and have them come by because it's a nice facility and, and get to meet us and feel a little bit more comfortable. Sure. That's probably very important for the whole, the outcome of any individual. It's like you're setting the stage well, that they can have a nice experience, that it can be both professional and kind, mm-hmm. and it can tee somebody up well that the admission process goes quite smoothly. My, is that, my guess is that that's one of your core goals. It is. I guess, is. We really want to do that. And we also realize that we're not maybe the right place for everyone. So we want to help get people directed to another treatment center if that happens to be an uh, insurance situation or if they need something specific to age and maybe working with somebody that say, 17 or under, we would direct them to an appropriate uh, treatment facility. Yeah, tell us a little bit about this. People where Cedar's probably not the right, the inappropriate place or not the right fit for them. And that often seems to come up, frankly, around insurance and cost. And if people are uh, needing to use particular insurances that we are in a network with, we want to try and get them connected to a place that does have that particular insurance or may be able to facilitate 
uh, working with their insurance and being able to build that. Or it also may be somebody who wants to uh, have a place that specifically just treats men or women, or maybe it's even out of state and it's beneficial for the patient to be able to to be out of state or out of the area and seek treatment there for a little while. Sure. I think it's rare for us to be inappropriate for someone that isn't for insurance or cost reasons or geographical reasons. Um, We are a very high level of medical and psychiatric care. Uh, We have nurses here 24 hours a day. We have an incredible team of doctors. and, and I would say we more frequently have someone transition directly from a hospital or psychiatric facility than we do interventions. Yes. Um, you know, in those, in those times, the doctors will want records and, and more information, but we are able to accommodate people who may be a little bit more complicated medically or psychiatrically. A, a big sort of disqualifier um, or red flag that someone not, might not be appropriate is um, a history of significant violence towards others. Um, okay. Or, and you know, that self-explanatory for the safety of all of our other patients and staff. And if someone has a co-occurring disorder that is primary. So we are dual diagnosis, but if someone is, you know, in an active psychosis or actively participating very heavily in an eating disorder, some kind of self-harm behavior, those are things that we would want to have addressed first and then revisit them coming to get substance abuse treatment. I do believe every person we have in treatment at Cedar does meet the criteria for at least one chemical dependency, like one substance use disorder. Yes. That, that is correct. At least. Okay. Yeah. All right. At least. It couldn't be that they are have primary bipolar disorder, they have some drinking use that they think might be an issue, and their main issue is bipolar. It has to be the other way around. They have to have a primary drinking problem or something. Okay. And we want to educate families and callers that we will be primarily focusing on substance abuse treatment. And as Audrey mentioned, we will address some of the mental health needs, but our primary focus, of course, would be on substance abuse treatment and recovery. Okay. Are there families that sometimes are disappointed by that? Mm-hmm. They, they wish we would... Our our main focus was depression treatment. Yes, things. yes. You know, and I might add that sometimes we get people that call that maybe the person they're calling about has significant cognitive impairments that they aren't able to engage in the programming and to be able to benefit from all the aspects of treatment here. And so that's also somewhere we might refer out and might encourage them to look at other places that maybe address those needs a little bit more particularly. Okay. I know CEDAR is uh, an LGBT-friendly program. We will, uh, I know we'll work with people of all different orientations, and th- that includes transgender folks as well. We can provide a lot of care to a lot of people here at CEDAR, but there, I know that there are some, or I know, and I know we also touched on age. We're not a, we're not a teenage program. It's mm-hmm. 18 and above. Is there any age... Uh, limit on the upside? Would we work with somebody who would be 90? And If I, they were cognitively appropriate and um, if they weren't a fall risk, a significant fall risk. So, you know, a lot of people who come in for one reason or another may 
have some risk to be, to falls or um, activities of daily living. So while we do have great nursing staff here, uh, our patients need to be able to feed and dress themselves, feed themselves, go to the bathroom themselves. And so if someone is 90 and, and is able to, to do all of those things, um, I don't, I don't think it would be inappropriate. Um, okay. No, that we could. Yeah. Just based on their activities of daily living mm -hmm. and can they ma kind of maximize the program? We want people to be able to engage fully in what CEDAR has to offer. Experience the compassionate care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org. On the insurance side, which insurances do we currently take? So currently we're in network with Cigna and with Anthem Blue Cross. And with those two insurance companies, they're very large. And we are in network with most Cigna and most Anthem Blue Cross. What we need to do is we need to call and uh, get information uh, from a card and do a verification of benefit and figure out first if we are in network for treatment and then we can pursue uh, medical approval and looking more into the admission process. Okay. Is this all done over the phone? It is. We, we do have a phone call with people and then they sometimes scan or uh, send us a copy through email of their card and we're able to then do a verification and then we're able to be able to talk about the uh, out-of-pocket maximum and different things that would be we would be collecting at time of admission. So that is somewhat on a case-by-case -case basis based on which insurance plan they have. Yes. Is that okay? Yes. You know and the insurance process can be frustrating and we understand that the insurance is always looking at medical necessity, and so once a patient comes in, we want to meet criteria for medical necessity so we can either get detox or residential coverage. And so when a person comes in and comes to our lobby, we would be asking a number of questions and doing a level of care assessment with them at that time so we could get uh, coverage and we would make phone calls to the insurance at that time to try and get either detox or residential coverage approval. And then we would go through with the admission process. I'd just like to throw in that the verification of benefits, finding out what would be due, um, that is done prior to the admission. Uh, the level of care assessment is done at the time of admission. So part of it is done beforehand and when people come here to admit and maybe several hours before we're able to take them back and that is so that we protect our patients and their families financially. Uh, we don't ever want someone to come back and then you know three months later surprise you owe X amount of money. We try to be as transparent as possible and do what's best for the families physically, emotionally, and financially. We don't want to put anybody out or give anybody unexpected costs. Okay, so it sounds like there are overall two primary 
phases of the admission process. The pre-screening, which sounds like is more over the phone, and then the first point of contact screening, and that's done in person here on the day that they're coming in. And the person needs to kind of clear both phases to be able to progress to actually the unit or the, the admission unit. Are, are there sometimes people that they really expect to be brought into CEDAR, but then we we have to say we're sorry. We it, it's we're, we have to turn them away for certain reasons. Some of those reasons might be if someone is had some medical issues or currently has medical issues that require other attention, as Audrey had mentioned earlier, that need to be addressed first. Um, it also could be a situation where they just aren't able to engage in the level of programming that we have here in an inpatient basis. Maybe again through cognitive or some physical impairments that it just wouldn't make sense for them to be in the type of program that we have for our residential treatment. Okay. And then for those uh, those cases, are we referring them to even different options within the CEDAR levels of care? We have, there's a lot of different services that are offered here. Is this uh, part of your guys' role as well? Is kind of triage or? The main reason why we would not admit someone on the day of admission, the scheduled admission, would be uh, because they were acutely very intoxicated. So that would be generally above a, a 0.4 blood alcohol level. Um, or so that's pretty intoxicated. That's, a, that's yeah. I mean, that's like we're talking about. A, so a DU for for benchmark, a, a DUI cutoff is 0 0.08. So this is five times that. Yes. So okay. And and we always breathalyze everybody because tolerance is uh, incredible. So you may be talking to somebody and and maybe be able to smell alcohol, but not be totally convinced that they're intoxicated and have them blow into the breathalyzer and they'll be up there. Um, if someone is shaking really badly, it may be an active seizure risk. Um, we have nursing assess them and they'll make that, that call to, to take them to the emergency room. Um, additionally, like Todd said, if someone is not deemed to be, to have medical necessity for either detox or residential treatment, insurance may deny inpatient days. So that can happen because someone isn't physically addicted to the substance. Um, they can stop on their own for extended periods of time. You know, th those are, I think, the two two main reasons. And so, yes, at that time, we would walk them just down the hall to our outpatient department, and, and they could explore the option of uh, attending groups here a few times a week and, and going home in the evening and then we have them in our system if that ends up not working out and inpatient does become more appropriate. Okay. And that, so that's what, uh, when we talk about our intensive outpatient program, that's what you're referring to. Yes. So that's a, that's called level two care and the kind of the standard, the high intensity residential treatment, we call that level four care. So that's where we're bringing people in. Okay. We have a very good relationship with the outpatient team and we always want to work together to make appropriate referrals. So just like Audrey said, we'll help them get connected to that team if that's something that would be beneficial at the time. We also like to let people know that prior authorization 
those days are granted in chunks. So someone may come in and, and Todd will do a level of care assessment with them and depending on uh, the insurance company, the policy, you know, the day of the week it seems sometimes they'll grant, I think generally between like two and five days initially. Mm-hmm. As the patient is here, that is assessed on an ongoing basis. So unfortunately, in admissions, we can't tell someone when they come in, you're going to be here for 31 days or you're going to be here for 10 days. I think right now our average is between two and three weeks that insurance covers. Um, we're very transparent about that because we don't want, again, anyone to be surprised at that time if there's uh, the ability within the family financially to pay out of pocket. Um, we have that as an option, but CEDAR offers a full continuum of care. So we have the detox, which is the highest level of care, residential, which is inpatient, partial hospitalization is generally what insurance will refer someone to after inpatient, and that is day treatment. So I think they come here from 9 to 3, Monday through Friday. Then intensive outpatient, which is three days a week. And then they can do continuing care and psychiatry on an outpatient basis uh, long term. So the goal is to have people engaged, accountable, participating in some form of treatment for as long as they can. Um, I think that gives them uh, better chances of maintaining long-term sobriety. Sure. I think that this is uh, this is really good to talk about because there has been a little bit of a medical cultural shift in addiction treatment that we've really witnessed over the last couple years. It used to be that people would enroll in 30 days of residential treatment. They would they would anticipate that right from the get-go, but now it's much more nuanced. So now we're, we're navigating this up-and-down continuum um, right from the get-go, and insurance sounds like it is playing a very significant role in how people go up and down that ladder based on the... Um, Todd, I know you, you alluded to this topic of medical necessity. Yes, and we want to be, again, as Audrey said, as transparent as we can we don't always know what the insurance uh, days will look like as far as coverage amount, and so we always want to inform family and patients of the possibilities and the next steps and keeping them in the loop of the, of the ongoing conversations with insurance companies. Sure. And that, uh, you know, Todd and I both, I think I can speak for him in this, have made helping people our, our life's work. You know, we work in this field because we truly care about helping addicts, alcoholics, and their families. And so if they come for the admission, they do the level of care assessment and insurance says, you know, you're not appropriate for inpatient or detox, they are still within our CEDAR system and they are still going to be able to talk to us. We'll make appropriate recommendations. And Part of why I think we get denials is that uh, CEDAR is a very, very high level of care, probably one of the highest levels of care in the country as far as medical and psychiatric complications go. And so sometimes insurance may not think that someone is medically, that treatment at this level of care is medically necessary. So we are affiliated with the University of Colorado Hospital. I can see the emergency room from my office um, nursing 24 hours. So Sometimes insurance may make recommendations for for facilities that are a lower level of care, and we're happy to help the family um, 
advocate for them through that process as well. A a fair amount of care I know also involves education. That's one of the reasons why, why we even started this podcast series was to help people understand uh, how really how addiction treatment works and, and uh, what we're, what we're discussing this concept of triage and treatment matching up and down this continuum of care is a, is a very important part of that discussion. The, um, well, uh, guys, this has been very good. It, if, uh, if we were to offer advice to listeners, so either listeners that were family members seeking care at Cedar or possibly clinicians in the community looking to refer people into Cedar for a dedicated addiction treatment, what, what would you have to say? You know, I would say gathering information and finding out what we offer at Cedar and other places is one of the best uh, options because then you'll be able to make a better educated decision. I think also understanding as much as you possibly can if you're choosing to use insurance. Again, insurance can be a very difficult uh, engagement at times for people because there's so many pieces to it. And trying to understand as much as you can about mental health and substance abuse treatment and your insurance and how those work together and hopefully we'll be able to answer any of those questions for you can be very helpful. I would say that um, my main piece of advice uh, would be whether you're you're the potential patient or their family member prior to calling sitting down and, and thinking about what exactly do you want to know what is important to you and maybe writing it down and, and having some room to take notes. It's it's a stressful phone call. A lot of times there's a lot of emotion. People may be in crisis. And so having notes for yourself and writing down, even if it's over a couple of days, what questions you have. So that way you're making sure that we are, are able to give you the information that you need. Sure. So being highly prepared for the interview process. I know it goes pretty in-depth. You guys, We are asking very detailed questions. Um, with these family members. Uh, I was struck by a podcast episode that we aired. I think this was, I don't know, maybe four or five episodes ago is when we sat down with Jay Voigt. And he, he had a really good quote. He said that one of the most important predictors of health outcomes in America is a person's ability or inability to navigate the healthcare system. And I think that that's very applicable to addiction treatment. And you guys are kind of on the front line to help people navigate it. Talking about insurance, talking about appropriateness for care, talking about what to expect. So I think that that seems to be a very important piece. Audrey, Todd, thank you so much for sitting down uh, with me and, and talking this through on our podcast. Do you, anybody, do you guys have any final thoughts? For our listeners? One thing that comes to mind is, as families will call, I also think it could be beneficial for them to mobilize together and maybe have a few family members or a few people that are advocating for the patient and working together. That can be very helpful in so many ways, in ways in which you might talk with the patient about coming to treatment ways in which you might work together to find out cost and treatment 
modalities and all the things that are presented at that particular treatment center, and also just for overall support. We understand this is a very dangerous disease and it affects everyone involved. And so working together can be very helpful. Yeah, and I think uh, especially for families, but also for alcoholics and, and addicts who may be calling or thinking about calling, uh, my final thoughts are to just give yourself some grace and 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 recognize that uh, nobody knows 100% what they're doing when they come into this. Uh, there are no stupid questions, and and just picking up the phone is a huge, huge first step. So, uh, you know, we're we're here to help you and trust us to to kind of guide you through it. But um, be kind to yourself too in the process. Okay. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, guys. I think this was really very helpful, and it was good sitting down with you. Uh, Audrey Davis, Todd Nice, as part of uh, the Cedar Admissions team. Thanks, guys. Thank Thanks, you. Dr. Phelan. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering CEDAR and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Helping people build a life of recovery.